0: Everybody, welcome back to the podcast. I am your host, Karen Litzy, and I am so excited to have back on the podcast today Dr. Tim Gabbett. For those of you who are not familiar with Tim and his work, he has 20 years' experience working as an applied sports scientist with athletes and coaches from a wide range of sports. He holds a PhD in human physiology and has completed a second PhD in applied science of professional football with special reference to physical demands, injury prevention, and skill acquisition. He's worked with elite international athletes over several Commonwealth Games and Olympic Games. He continues to work as a sports science and coaching consultant for several high-performance teams around the world. He has published over 200 peer-reviewed articles and has presented at over 200 national and international conferences. He is committed to performing world-leading research that can be applied in the real world to benefit high-performance coaches and athletes, and I would also add to that that it benefits almost all people, not just the high-performance coaches and athletes, and in today's episode, We are diving deeper into his latest paper, Debunking the Myths About Training Load, Injury, and Performance, Empirical Evidence, Hot Topics, and Recommendations for Practitioners that was just released on October 26, 2018 by the British Journal of Sports Medicine. So a huge thanks to Tim for coming on and allowing us to dive a little bit deeper into some of the myths that are in this paper. Uh, We talk about the acute to chronic workload ratio, ways to quantify those training loads, the 10% rule, and is it foolproof, and practical ways for practitioners to translate research into the clinic, because we all don't work with high-performance teams. We all don't have all of these great resources at our fingertips, so it's important for the Uh, clinician that's not working with the professional sports team to be able to utilize Tim's research. And I can tell you, as a physical therapist who goes into people's homes, I utilize this for all of my patients, whether it be the 10-year-old that I'm seeing up to the 91-year-old that I'm seeing. Um, So a big thanks to Tim for coming on and sharing a little bit more about this paper and diving a little bit into the why of the paper. So everyone, enjoy today's podcast. Hey, Tim, welcome back to the podcast. I'm honored to have you on again.
1: Thank you for having me back, Karen. It's, um, it's good to be back talking to you again.
0: Yeah, and today we are talking about a new paper that just came out in the British Journal of Sports Medicine. Uh, one of your papers, I should say, just to clarify for the audience, we're not talking about someone else's paper. And your paper is Debunking the Myths About Training Load, Injury, and Performance, Empirical Evidence, Hot Topics, and Recommendations for Practitioners. So my first question is, why did? what's the why behind this paper?
1: Yeah, well, that's a good, good question to start with, Karen. Look, I, um, I think with, with training load, there's, there is a lot of myths that are out there. And um, social media is great for, for sharing information, but sometimes those myths get perpetuated on on social media, and um, they grow um, and they grow into you know a life of their own. So what I what I thought I'd do is try and um, take some of the things that I've seen over the last few years around training load, injury, and performance, and then address address some of those um, those and and call call out the myths that that I've seen over the last few years. Um, of course, they're not not all the myths that are around uh, relating to training load, but I've decided to address five of them.
0: Right, and so what we'll do is, I'm just gonna read through those five myths, and then just for the listeners, Tim and I will expand on a couple of them, but not all of them, because you have to go and read the paper. Um, so myth number one was load explains all injuries. Myth number two is the 10% rule. Myth number three, avoid spikes and troughs at all costs. Myth number four is 1.5 is the magic acute to chronic workload ratio. And sorry, that was myth number four. And myth number five is it's all about the ratio. So before we even go any further, Tim, for the listeners who may not be familiar with your work and familiar with what the acute to chronic uh, workload ratio is. Can you define that for us?
1: Yeah, sure. Oh, uh, look, training load can be can be broken down into into positive and negatives. Um, when we when we look at short term training load, we call that acute acute load, and that could be say anything from from one session up to one week. And and typically, acute load looks at the fatigue associated with with training. Now, on the other hand, we have the positive effect, which is the fitness effect that comes with training. It's the the training that is performed over a longer period of time and we call that chronic load. When we take the ratio of acute load to chronic load or the size of your fatigue relative to the fitness that you've developed, that gives us a ratio of, and we call it the acute to chronic workload ratio. Um, When we have rapid increases in acute load, or when that ratio is really high, what we have seen is that the risk of injury also increases. Um, So that's a sort of a a bit of a snapshot of of what the acute chronic workload ratio is.
0: Perfect. And now let's get into, let's dive into one of the myths here. And we're going to stick with that sort of acute to chronic workload ratio and that magic number of 1.5. So Hmm. why is this a myth?
1: Well, the the first thing to to keep in mind is that when we we keep our acute to chronic workloads roughly equal, when we have small increases, small decreases in load, our risk of injury is is quite low. But when we rapidly increase acute loads over our chronic load, that's when we increase the risk of injury. And what what we've seen is, on average, uh, that risk increases at around a ratio of 1.5 so when when you've done one and a half times the load that you've been prepared for that's when the the risk of injury increases um, now when when we um, put out the the original paper that the training injury prevention paradox paper, we had a colorful there was a colorful graph in there that had a sweet spot highlighted in green and uh, a danger zone highlighted in in red or pink um, now. That, that, that graph flies around the internet and um, if I, I should have known that if all I had to do to get my, my figures and papers noticed was to add a bit of colour, um, I would have done it years ago. But the, the problem is um, what it appears is that when you hit a magic number of 1.5 in that acute chronic ratio that, that you're definitely going to get injured and that you, you can't go over a ratio of 1.5. But the reality is um, things like that happen all the time. They happen in, in sport. They happen in, in industry, just in the workplace. Um, sometimes you're required to do extra activity, extra work that you're not prepared for. Some athletes break down, but not all athletes break down. Um, so it's, just, it's it's important to keep in mind that even though the risk has increased, at a ratio of 1.5, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're definitely going to break. There's a there's an increased risk, but um, that doesn't mean that there's an, definitely going to be an increased rate. So risk doesn't equal rate, um, and there's a lot of factors that can explain that. But that's that's one of the important myths to to keep in mind is that sometimes you you can plan to go over a ratio of 1.5. Sometimes it's unplanned and it's unavoidable. Um, but just because you do go over a ratio of 1.5 doesn't mean that you're definitely going to break.
0: And I would also think that you can also look at it if you're under that ratio of 1.5, you're never going to get injured. You know, do you see that flip side of it as well, right?
1: Absolutely. So, so if you... If you look at um, the, the sweet spot curve and you look at the, the danger zone and the sweet spot, you can see that each one of those dots represents an athlete. So, so some athletes can theoretically be in the danger zone, but their risk of injury is really low. And then there's others who are theoretically in the sweet spot, but their risk of injury is really high. So what we're talking about there is robust and fragile athletes. Some, on average, this is what the majority of people will do. But, of course, we don't work in averages the majority of time. We work with, with individual athletes. So we, we still need to to keep in mind that, that some athletes will handle greater loads and can handle rapid changes in load, and then other athletes can handle uh, much smaller absolute loads and much smaller changes in load.
0: Exactly. And I I would also think that even if you have this more robust athlete, there are other moderating variables because you're dealing, like you said, with the person in front of you, not a dot on a chart and not an average. And um, something that I appreciated about this paper is sort of taking into account the sort of looking through a biopsychosocial lens. So when you're prescribing your training load as the practitioners, we also have to take into consideration, like you wrote, poor biomechanics, stress, anxiety, inadequate sleep, and and personality traits of this person are all going to make a difference on this one point five ratio.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right, Karen. Look, I I think this is a this is a really key point that um, when when we're working with athletes, when we're working with patients. Yes, we want, to, we want to, to use some scientific information. We can, we can use numbers to help inform our decision-making, but we don't, we don't coach the number. We coach the athlete. We coach the patient. That's the person we're working with. And it would be, it'd be really convenient if load explained all injuries, but um, the reality is load is just part of the puzzle. And um, as soon as we as soon as we load someone, we we also need to consider well, how did they respond to that load? So we're we're talking about factors that can influence the tolerance to load. So we're talking about um, psychological factors. It could be stress. It could be anxiety. It could be um, things as simple as sleep quality. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of these things will impact on a, an athlete's ability to tolerate load. Um, and, and you also talked about moderating factors. One of the, the, key, the key things that separate our robust from our, athlete, uh, our fragile athletes, the ones that can handle load versus the ones that, that break down at lower loads, uh, there's a number of moderating factors. So physical quality, strength and aerobic fitness, we know are important, um, but we also know training training history, injury history, and also age. Um, those that are really young and really old don't tend to handle spikes and load very well. So we don't just consider one, one variable of the acute chronic ratio or one number of 1.5. There's a, there's a, a number of moderating factors that we need to consider. But importantly, it's, it's getting to know your athlete as well, what, what they can handle on an individual basis. That's the really important thing, I think, that we need to keep in mind with all of this research.
0: Yeah, and I think from a practitioner standpoint, it's also checking in with your athlete when you see them every day, because we may have an agenda in our mind, but that patient comes in and says, man, I only slept like three hours last night, or I just flew in from XYZ and you're in a different time zone and I didn't sleep well. So are you going to be, you need to be flexible enough to be able to change your agenda for that day, I think based on... Like you said, the simple variable of sleep.
1: Absolutely, uh, anyone can write a, a program up on a whiteboard and say do this, um, but the the tricky is actually uh, reading some body language, uh, having a discussion with your athlete, and and the more the more you observe those things, I actually I actually feel sometimes those those things that the athlete tells. And those body language cues and and um, those those little conversations and things that you read from the athlete actually tell us more than than some of the numbers sometimes that that we can measure. Um, and uh, you know, I often tell a story about you know when we had no resources to to monitor athletes. Um, how did you know how how could I use you know what information could I use to train the athlete well and the. The trick was I had to go back. How did I used to do it? I had to go back and I had to learn my athlete. I had to work out what made that athlete tick. And I had to, to really get to know them when they were feeling up and they could train well and, and the things that, that used to bring them down. Um, sometimes you have to work through that, but then other times you have to work with the athlete to, to go, okay, well, maybe you need a little bit more rest. Um, yeah, it's it's and it's definitely not a one-size-fits-all.
0: No, definitely not. And I think that takes us well into the next myth I want to dive into, and that's the 10% rule. Like you said, anybody can write a program up on a whiteboard and say, okay, so each week we're going to increase 10% or each training session increase by 10%. So can you tell us a little bit more about why that might be a myth?
1: Look, the ten percent rule is something that's been used for a long time, um, particularly in endurance sport populations, and it's it's generally seen as a as a good guide to safely progress um, weekly training loads. Don't don't exceed um, increases in training load by more than ten percent, and it's it's generally seen as a good guide. But it's important to keep in mind that that 10% for one person is going to be completely different from another person. And, and I'll use a, a couple of analogies here. Let's, let's consider um, load in terms of the floor and the ceiling. So the floor is is where you have your lower, it could be a low level, of chronic, uh, low, low level of chronic load. And when you're at the floor, you can obviously, um, the only way is up. So you can progress very quickly. Um, but if you, limit, if you limit your weekly increases to 10% or less, then it will take you a long time to get from the floor to the ceiling. Um, so it may be that when you're at the floor, you can progress a little quicker than 10% per week. If you're at the ceiling, if you're an elite athlete, then your chronic loads are quite high you can't put 10% on top of already high chronic loads. It could be that you can only increase by 1% or half a percent per week. Um, so it's, it's very, very much contextual. You need to take into context the, the chronic load and the training history of your athlete. Now, there's another extreme there, and that, that is what happens if you've uh, been um, in bed rest for, for a year. So you're not at the floor, you're actually in the basement. Your chronic load is so low um, that just getting out of bed is is a is a massive increase in load. so in in that situation, you probably need to to keep those weekly increases in load quite low because you just can't handle ten percent. So when you're in the basement or when you're in the ceiling, keep the the percentage changes in load from week to week quite small. But if you have moderate to high chronic loads, then you can probably progress a little quicker.
0: Yeah, that makes perfect sense to me. And again, it all comes down to looking at the person in front of you and being smart about how you're going to prescribe their program.
1: Yeah, look, I I agree. It's... um... You know, I, I think I think that's probably the 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 thing that we we need to keep in mind as as practitioners, whether we're we're physical therapists, whether we're strength and conditioning coaches, is um, all of us have our own training and our own our own degrees and our own certifications that give us a certain amount of intelligence, but we still need to be socially aware. <laughs> you know, just just read some cues, read the person in front of you, have a conversation with that person they'll they'll tell you, if you ask the right questions, you'll lead them to the answer. And they'll tell you how they're feeling. They'll tell you um, where their problems are. Um, but you just have to listen. You have to ask the right questions. You have to listen, communicate with your athletes, communicate with your patients.
0: Yeah. And I think taking a good history, if you're seeing this person for the first time, taking a good history. And like you said, using motivational interviewing and and really kind of allowing the athlete or the patient to lead you to exactly what they need. Cause it's usually what happens, but you have to make sure that you're present and that you are, like you said, listening.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Look uh, and uh, you know, I think we, we keep coming back to it that, um, you know, the num, the numbers are important, but, um, we don't coach, we don't coach numbers. Uh, we we work we work with people and um, it, it might it might seem surprising to the scientists out there or the the people with scientific minds but but a lot of our patients and a lot of our athletes aren 't as excited about the scientific numbers as we are it, it might it might seem really surprising but um you know a lot of them are more interested in uh, well just just tell me how how I can get better or or help me get better or help me get back to full function um, that's that's their focus.
0: Yeah, I think if you're looking from the athlete or the patient standpoint, the main question in their mind is, what is this going to do for me? That's it. what yeah, What is yeah. what you're going to do, do for me? And I think as a practitioner, we have to be able to answer that question um, in a way that the patient is going to be satisfied with. So if someone came to you, Tim, and said, and, and you, you know, you've got this whole plan worked out to them for them, sorry. And the patient asks you, well, what is this going to do for me? What would your response be?
1: Well, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, like from, from my point of view, if we're, let's, let's use the example of pushing harder with with chronic loads. So we, we want to try and build chronic loads, maybe through a shock block, for example, or in some sort of intensified training. Most athletes look at, at that kind of training and there's, there's a, um, I wouldn't say, say fear, but there's kind of an uncertainty. Can I handle it? Um, and well, and is it actually worth it? Um, so, so one of the, the selling points is yes, it, well, you have to explain to them, you're going to be tired. You're going to be sore. Uh, there's there's going to be fatigue that you're experiencing. Um, and there's going to be, you're going to go to a place that you've probably never been to before. But at the end of that, we're going to to unload you and you're going to bounce back from that. And and you'll get, your physical qualities will, will actually reach a new level. You'll, there'll be super conversation that occurs and, and uh, and, and there'll be a lot of benefits physically for you. But there's no easy way to get to that point. You actually have to go through a little bit of hard work and a little bit of discomfort in order to get that benefit. Um, and the same thing the same thing would go if we were, uh, would apply if we were talking about a patient uh, who's, who's coming back from injury and we want to, to load early. There will be a, um, some discomfort in, in loading that patient early and there, there may be a little bit of, within that that early loading period Um, but but the benefits of early loading far outweigh um, you know putting them in 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 a boot for example for a month and doing nothing so um, you know part of it is is kind of selling the dream if you like of that things could be a lot better for Mm -hmm. you than what they are now now we don't have to use a lot of science to do that but um, because um, you know, they don't necessarily want to know the science but we have to be able to, to sell the dream that um, doing it a certain way may come with a little bit of short-term pain and I, when I say pain it could be discomfort or this is unusual or, or um, an unusual approach for me but the long-term benefits far outweigh that short-term pain.
0: Yeah and I think that's a great way uh, to approach that with your athletes and with your patients so thanks for that. Um, now let's go on to we'll kind of dive into one more myth here and that is it's all about the ratio so again we're back to numbers right so why is this a myth that it's all about the ratio
1: okay well let's let's uh, use an example of um, so, uh, an athlete who's in rehab and so their chronic load has tracked down in theory we could have their acute and chronic Workloads could be roughly equal, so in theory, they their acute-chronic ratio could be in the sweet spot. And and if if it said if they're in the sweet spot, then you know everything's fine. Their injury risk is low in theory. But what we need to to keep in mind is is we need to interpret that acute-chronic ratio in relation to chronic load. And if their chronic workload is in the basement, if they're in rehab and their chronic load is tracked down. Even though their acute chronic ratio is in the sweet spot, their chronic load does not allow them to be prepared for anything. Um, if they're in the basement, they're a long way away from the ceiling, they're a long way away from, from the demands of, of competition. So whenever we're we're looking at the ratio, we also need to interpret that data in relation to chronic load, at least at least chronic load, probably other variables as well. But always look at chronic load and say, well. What are the demands of competition? How far are we away from being able to perform those demands? Um, so that's that's one of the important things about um, it not being all about the ratio. And you've also mentioned previously that it's there's moderating factors, and there's also a whole heap of um, biopsychosocial factors that that play a role in interpreting whether an athlete or a patient is ready to tolerate more load.
0: Um. I think through all of this discussion, you know, we're talking about acute load and chronic load, and can you give some examples of how, like, what measurements are we taking to get this, because we've been talking about numbers, right? So you have that 1.5 or that sweet spot. What are some examples of measurements that we might be taking that are measuring load? Hmm.
1: Let's, I mean, let's... There's a there's a number of measures that we can take of load. So if we were an elite team, we we can assume that we've got a lot of resources at our disposal to do that. So we might be able to to measure GPS, or if we're in an elite cycling team, maybe we've got power outputs for our for our bikes. But let's assume that we're we're in the clinic and we we don't have all the resources at our disposal. Yeah. Then we have to we have to build our program from the ground up. We have to monitor with minimal resources. And the way that we can do that is we can look at, um, we can, when we, when we discuss load, there's, there's three main variables that we need to discuss. We need to, to talk about frequency of training. We need to talk about the volume of, of the individual sessions and we can talk about the intensity of those sessions. So if you just wanted to, to monitor frequency, the number of sessions that your your patient or athlete uh, performs in a week, that's a, a type of load. But of, of course, it doesn't tell us about how long or how intense those sessions are. So we can build it a little a little further. We can go, well, let's not just talk about frequency, let's talk about the duration or the volume of those sessions. How long were they? And then the, the third part is well. Um, you can have long sessions that are really easy or you can have long sessions that are really hard. So what is the intensity of those sessions? And we can, we can quantify intensity just through asking the athlete, how hard was your, sh- was your session today? Then mm-hmm. we can use um, RPE scales for that. If you have frequency, you have volume or a duration measure, and you have intensity, um, then you've got load. You've, you've got a type of load that you can quantify even when you don't have a lot of resources at your disposal.
0: Got it. And I think that's important because the majority of people are not working with elite athletes. For us regular folks who are working out of a clinic or working in the home, being able to track frequency, length of sessions and intensity certainly makes it a lot easier. Now, if you're tracking all of this frequency, volume and intensity, how do you put that all together to get that ratio, to get that number?
1: Okay, so if we were to, we were to build build a, a let's say a, a weekly schedule, for example, and that would give us acute load for one week. We can let's say we do one session a week. Oh, sorry, one session a day for the week. We can so that's that's seven sessions. There's our frequency measure, but we can also quantify the volume, so the duration of that of that session. And if we if we quantify the intensity using an rpe scale just a 1 to 10 scale then we can we can quantify load for each session within that week let's let's say for example we have a 60 minute session on monday and it was rated the athlete rated it hard now hard on the rpe scale is a 5 so all we do then is is multiply the the duration by the intensity to give us load. So it'll be 60 minutes times a a score of five will give us 300 load units for that particular session. Now, if you do two sessions in a day, then you can can add up the daily load. Or if you do multiple sessions in a week, you can add up all of those loads across the week and that will give you a load score, an acute load for that week. As As you string more weeks together, then you can see whether your load is increasing or decreasing. And then it's just a matter of calculating your chronic load,
0: mm-hmm. your
1: load over a longer period of time, and then taking the acute over the chronic to give you your acute chronic workload ratio. It's it's really as, as simple as that as a, as a starting point.
0: Perfect. Thank you so much for just expanding on the math there. Um, and again, like we said, that's the math part. Then you got the person part and that's what makes this all so hard. So like I said, we're not going to go into all the myths because we want you to read the paper, but, um, what's next for practitioners then?
1: Yeah, look, I, I think, um, I think this is the, the, the million dollar question is whenever we, we put research out and I, I really encourage, I really encourage practitioners to, to read as much as they can. Um, and then, as soon as they they read the paper, the the question they should be asking is how is how is this going to change my practice? How is this going to change the way I train my my patients or train change the way I train my athletes? Um, from a practitioner point of view, I, I think I think this this in, this paper will kind of contextualize. Um, some of the challenges that we have around loading patients. Um, if I was, if I was to recommend um, one take-home for practitioners from from this particular paper is is build chronic load. At the moment, we have a, a method that can can safely, where we can use to safely progress and regress loads, and that that comes with the acute chronic workload ratio but the ratio itself is not the end point we still have to build to something and if we know what we're building towards if we have an end point which is our our ceiling our chronic load ceiling then then we're building towards something so the the take home point for me with your with your patients loading is key loading is is one of those big rocks that if we can get it right we we get our athletes or our patients out of rehab and we keep them there we keep them out of rehab and we keep them performing and that's that's what we all want we want to build robustness in our athletes we want to we want to build an unbreakable athlete that's whether we're a physical therapist whether a strength and conditioning coach and the way we do that is through building chronic load so so while while we use the acute chronic ratio to, to safely progress and regress loads. Let's not, let's not forget the denominator in the equation. Let's not forget that we've got to, we've got to consider chronic load. We've got to build towards something.
0: And do you suggest for practitioners, if they have their athlete or their patient coming in of thinking, well, what is the, you think what is the angle? What does this person or athlete want to get back to? And then work backwards from that in order to build up the chronic load.
1: Yeah, the way, yeah, the way, it's a good question. The way I do it is is you you want to know what is the ceiling. So what is the end point. Then you also want to know what is what is the floor. So what is the starting point? Um, and you can do that through your assessments with your, your clinical assessments. You get a, a gauge of, of what they're capable of. And then your, your third piece of information that you need is what's the time that I've got to get them from the floor to the ceiling. Once you have those three, three pieces of information, then you can develop a program to, to safely build that athlete back to the ceiling. Um, and, and an example I would use is if, if you have someone who, who needs to be able to, you want them to be able to get to 30 or, or 50 standing calf raises and they can only do 12, then your your chronic, your chronic load ceiling is the 30 to 50 standing calf raises. Um, the floor is the 12. And then you, you need to build the time. What is the time that I have in order to get them back from, from the floor of 12 up to the ceiling of 50. And, and you can use the acute current ratio to, to safely progress that so that you can either, you can, you can keep your time short, you can make it a really short time frame, but what that means is that you've rapidly increased load and increased risk. Um, or you can use really small increases and take forever to get them there um, and then by the time they get to the chronic load that you need them to, they're, they're at retiring age. So <laughs> so you, you need to be sensible about your loading as well, but the acute chronic ratio allows you to, to use it as a bit of a guide to safely progress to higher loads.
0: Perfect. Great example. Thank you so much. And I feel like you already kind of gave the Key takeaway, which is building chronic load, and that chronic load is key. Is there anything else that maybe we didn't hit upon that you really want to impress onto the listeners?
1: Oh, look, I, I just appreciate the chance to, to talk about talk about this stuff and, and get the message out, Karen. So, um, you know, I think I, I think that probably from a from a, a research and empirical evidence point of view. I'd really encourage the, the readers to to read the evidence. Um, use social media to as a as a signpost, to, and then, um, but that's not actually the evidence. The social the social Stop media post the evidence.
0: What? <laughs> you mean two hundred and forty <laughs> character tweets, not the evidence?
1: Is there that many? Two hundred and forty characters. I think is it so. going up?
0: Yeah, it's gone yeah. up. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, look, there's. I know you might be surprised at that, but um, I, I've only worked it out just recently that that you actually have to go and read the paper um, because you actually get a little bit more information in the paper. Um, it's It's a really good signpost though you know like you know, I probably didn't appreciate um, how how important um, referenced blogs are uh, because they take, they take that that paper which is which is written in a really sciencey jargon um, and it's it's pretty hard to, to get through for the majority of people and it, it it writes it in a in a much more user-friendly way and a lot a lot more digestible way. And I probably didn't realise, I didn't appreciate how important podcasts like yours are um, for getting good scientific information out. Um, and it's just so important for so many people that if you can't get the scientific information in, you just can't digest big papers. Then the podcast just make it a lot more user friendly. They and it's uh, you know what you what you find is that the majority of of researchers will will speak a lot differently from the way that they write, um, and there's a, there's a little bit more of a story that they can tell um, in a in a podcast that they can't tell in a scientific paper. So. You know, I, I think they go. I think the social media and the scientific uh, publications go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. But if you can get and read the papers, try and try and embed yourself in those papers. The more you practice it, the the easier it becomes to to digest that information.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I think that's great advice for everyone listening. That a podcast and a blog and Twitter and Instagram and Facebook are great for giving you synopsis, and they're great at, at, I think, planting the seed in your mind to say, you know, I, this is really interesting. I, I now I need to go and read this paper. So great advice. And now before we end, I just have one question left that I ask everyone, and that's knowing where you are now in your career and in your life, what advice would you give to yourself as a new grad? Or maybe after you got your first PhD, I don't know. What advice would you give yourself then, based on where you are now
1: oh, you you asked me this question last time, and it was a tough one then, and i don't know what I said, but this is what i what I think think now um, like i've I feel like I've worked really really hard um, and to 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 move my way through my career and and that's probably one of the things that that defines me really is 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 being disciplined and persistent and, and working hard. But if I had one piece of advice um, to my younger self is is just don't worry so much. Don't stress. Um, just enjoy the ride. Um, and you know, I, I think that's probably the, the the one thing that I that I look back at at now and I think, you know, I, I tend to land on my feet. Um, and people and if you if you work hard enough in the the important areas of your life and you and you commit to something and and you are prepared to put the time in then you don't really have to worry about things that may never happen and you can just you can just um you land on your feet when things go wrong and you will get you will get some knockbacks in your life but um you just you have to trust in yourself that you're resilient enough to pick yourself back up off the canvas and keep Keep punching on and keep moving forward, and and I think I think that's a um, it's a, a good lesson for anyone that that goes through their through whatever their career be it an athletic career or, or a professional discipline, is you're going to get knockbacks in your life, uh, but just just keep keep working hard at it, and the harder you work, the easier things get. Don't worry so much um, because uh, everything works out in the end. So that's that's kind of my long long little uh, advice to my younger self, and I don't know if someone can take something out of that. Then that's great.
0: That's great. Thank you so much for that advice, and of course, Pete, you're on social media, uh, so people can find you on Twitter. Where?
1: Uh, my my Twitter handle is at Tim Gabbett, um, and pretty much pretty much any of the the research. I'll put, on, I'll put on Twitter as a little signpost. You'll see it on um, Facebook and, and Instagram. Uh, but as, as I say, uh, there's a signpost. Go back and, and read the paper if you can.
0: Exactly. And mention your website, please.
1: Yes, it's uh, Um it'll, it'll have all the details of all our um, Train Smarter and Harder workshops. And keep keep an eye out in the US because we're coming in January Um, there will be, there will be some new announcements soon, hopefully something in New York.
0: Yes. Um,
1: and there's one in Santa Barbara on the West coast. So that's nice. um, Yeah. It'd be great to, great to meet some new physical therapists and, and strength and conditioning coaches at these, um, at these courses.
0: Awesome. And just, and of course there's has to be like a siren going past my apartment as I'm talking (laughs) here. So hopefully people can hear that. But, um, once again, the paper is in the british journal of sports medicine it's called debunking the myths about training load injury prevention and performance empirical evidence hot topics and recommendations for practitioners so tim once again thank you for coming on
1: thank you for having me karen it's always great
0: talking to you thanks great talking to you as well and everyone else listening thank you so much for tuning in have a great couple of days and stay healthy wealthy and smart